God, we praise you that you have uh, graciously revealed yourself to us through your word. We praise you that you have not kept yourself disclosed, but that you have chosen uh, to go public and to reveal yourself, not only through creation in a general way, but through scripture in a specific and particular way, and ultimately through Christ in a saving way. Uh, We thank you for that uh, revelation that you have given, and we ask that as we turn to your word now, that you would bless our time. That, that you would make this profitable time, that you would give us uh, humble minds and hearts to be contrite um, and sit under the authority and beauty of your word. We pray you would do that for every church right now in the city that's opening up your scriptures. We pray you would bless their time as they worship, that Jesus would be lifted up in the, uh, the eyes of their congregation visitors, and, and that Christ would be put on full display across the city, not only here, but, um, but across the city in every church that is gathering right now. Lord, we pray for uh, our time in this text, God, that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would show us the beauty of Jesus. We pray that you would remind us again of your faithfulness, that you would remind us in a fresh and new way that you're trustworthy, that you're sovereign, that you're wise, that you're for us, and that you're good. Lord, would you take the burdens and the problems that we're all facing right now, and would you Show us how they intersect with your character revealed in this passage. That as we hear of your goodness and your provision, that we would know that the same God revealed in the scripture is the God who is near to us, who wants uh, to draw us near, and and who, who wants to be with us and who is with us in Christ. Lord, would you help us to see our lives connected to the truth that we're going to read and encounter? And we pray most of all, God, that from your word, uh, our love for Christ would increase um, in our hearts, that we would trust him more, that we would love him more, and we would be more resolved to, to follow him for your glory and for the good of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Exodus. This is the second week uh, in our series in Exodus, and Exodus is a critical book because it answers so many important questions. Though it's an ancient book and an ancient text, it answers so many pressing questions for us. If you've ever wondered, who is God? Exodus is for you. If you ever wondered, what is God like? Exodus is for you. If you ever wondered, where is God or what is the purpose of my life in dark times, Exodus is for you. If you've ever wondered, what does it mean to be God's people in a complicated, complex world, Exodus is for you. If you've ever wanted to better understand Jesus and the gospel, Exodus is for you. It will help us do all of those things. One commentator uh, put, put it like this, that there's no better book in the Old Testament to look to to deeply understand the central message of the New Testament than the book of Exodus. It fills in and it lays out the rich story of God's work in the world through the life of his people and through raising up a person and delivering them from captivity. So when we look at Exodus today, we're going to look at how God is continuing to work in the lives of his people, to set the stage and to set the background. Last week, we looked at Exodus 1, and the story of the Exodus is that is this, is that God in the beginning creates humanity to dwell with him, to be with him, and to flourish under his reign and rule, cultivating the earth, 
and just enjoying life. Well, humanity rebels against that rule, runs from that, sin enters the world, but yet God makes a promise that I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to restore you back to me and restore the nations back to me, and I'm going to dwell with you. You're going to be my people, and you're going to live in my presence and flourish. And so the unfolding of the book of Genesis is just continued promise that God is going to establish a people, and through that people, he's going to bless the whole world with his presence and his favor. And so Genesis is the unfolding of that plan, and things look great, and then they go sideways, things look great, then they go sideways, things look great, then they go sideways, and things are beginning to look great towards the the end of of Genesis. There's trials, but God is working through them, and then things take a nosedive when the people of God are enslaved in Egypt. They're far from where God has promised them to be. They seem to be far from the presence of God, and they're under this huge burden of suffering, slavery, and enforced labor. And so we asked last week, well, where is God? Where is God in his promise to bless the nations through this people? Where is God in his promise to be faithful to them? Where is God in in his promise to these people who are suffering so much? We saw in Exodus 1 that God was raised up two women, Shifra and Pua, two women who feared God more than they feared the world, and they acted, they trusted him. And through their action, God was beginning to bring a glimmer of hope and deliverance. And what we're going to see in Exodus 2 is that God is continuing to bring a hope and glimmer of deliverance in the midst of dark times. Now, the difference between Exodus uh, 2 and Exodus 1 is that here in Exodus 2, we're going to see a really particular person who God is going to use in a continual way for their deliverance. We're going to be introduced to the character Moses, and we're going to see how God is working for our good even when we can't see what he's doing. So let's look at the text, Exodus 2, 1 through 22. The background of this is that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has given this evil edict to have all the baby boys born to the Hebrews killed because he wants to keep the Hebrew people subdued. He's afraid that they're going to revolt against them. He wants to keep them subdued. And so that's the background of this text. And Shifra and Pua had righteously resisted to help save, uh, to save babies. And here is what happens next in the story, according to the author. Exodus 2.1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. 
and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and, sh- and thought, surely the, the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So what I want to do for us is to kind of retell this story and then show us three really critical things that we need to understand from this text. And really the big idea, I think, from this text is, is this uh, charge, is that do not trust what you can see, but trust the sovereign promise of God. Do not trust what you can see, but trust the sovereign promise of God. I think that's really the big central thing that's happening here. But I want to retell this story with a couple insights and then get into really three major things for us to see. So the background edict of this is that Pharaoh wants the Hebrew people uh, oppressed, suppressed, limited, and he in chapter one does three different levels of evil to keep them under wraps. But Shifra and Pua resist, and we see that their resistance, their fear of God, their trust in God, rather than fearing Pharaoh, has led other people to resist and fear God as well. And so we have this this woman who gives birth to a boy. She keeps him hidden for three months for as long as she, she can, and then she puts him in a basket and sends him down the river hoping that things will turn out well. She's acting again in trust. All she has is trust and faith in God. She's hoping and trusting that this will work well. There's a couple things here in the text that we need to see as we look at the the birth of Moses. One of the things here is that this is, uh, we see that his lineage is tied to Levi. This is a sign that he's going to be a sort of mediator, a priest, a sort of helper, that something special is going to happen through him. The other thing that's significant here is that he's put into a basket and he's floated down water. And he's going to be raised up as a deliverer for God's people. Well, where have we seen water and people trapped inside something in water leading to deliverance of people in the biblical story before? Think of the animals and the man whose name starts with an N and ends with an H and has an O and has an A. Right, Noah? Right? So we've we've seen this before. This is something that's meant to catch our eyes like, oh, this is like if you're watching the movie and you're seeing two different scenes with the same music. You're like, oh, this is kind of a callback to here. It was like, we're seeing something happening here. That, oh, okay, this is something significant, that this is, baby is going to be a part of the deliverance of God's people. Well, how is that going to happen? He's born under Pharaoh who's killing all of these baby boys. But look at what God does. Look at how God aligns all these circumstances to lead not to Moses' death, but to Moses rising up. So Moses is taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. 
Now, Pharaoh probably had many daughters, right? But one of his daughters sees the baby and, and, and has her servant come and take it. And notice who's kind of trailing at a distance. Moses' big sis, just to make sure everything works out for little bro. And so she's there, and she sees the, uh, the Pharaoh's daughter take him, and she shows up and says, hey, uh, do you, I know someone who can nurse him for you. Do you want me to, to call her, and maybe this could work out great? So she's like, okay. She's like, all right, great. And look at how God works these circumstances. Not only is Moses going to end up back with his mother, but his mother is going to end up with some paper for it. He, she's going to get paid to nurse her own son. Look at how God is working sovereignly for his purposes in the midst of evil. So not only does Moses survive, but Moses is brought back to his mother who is now being paid to nurse her son who Pharaoh wants killed. And who's one of the people that's central in this? Pharaoh's very own daughter. This is the sovereign work of God. This is not simply coincidence. So Moses goes back to his mother. He's raised in that environment for at least a number of years. So he's most likely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, hearing what the people know about God and the promises that were made to Abraham. And he's learning his his Hebrew identity. And then he's going to go back and become Pharaoh's daughter and live in the royal house and and learn the best of the Egyptian culture and get educated in the Egyptian ways. And he's going to learn the best of both of these two distinct worlds. And then we get this transition in the text. We get verse 11. One day, Pharaoh had grown up, he went out to his people, and looked on their burdens. This is a number of years later. This is probably 40 years later. So Moses is about 40 at this time. So Moses has been schooled in the ways of the Egyptian. He's lived a royal life. And then here, one day, he goes out to see the burdens of his people. And he's crushed. He maybe remembers back to his Hebrew identity, the things that he was taught. And maybe he has this inner conflict for a number of years knowing that this is who I am, but this is the place that I've been put in under these Egyptians. How do I navigate these two worlds? Well, he goes and sees what's happening to his people, and he's crushed. His heart burns for justice. And what does Moses do? He strikes. He defends. He murders. And now this royal son of Pharaoh's daughter becomes an outlaw who has to leave and flee to Midian and to go and flee from Pharaoh who is now saying, there's been someone going against me from within my house. I need to kill him. I need to have justice be served. So Moses has to flee. He goes to Midian. He, he's wandering there. He sees uh, shepherds come and, and try to pull a fast one and he defends these women and he ends up being blessed by God with a family. But now we come to this part of the story where the person that God is raising up to deliver his people is nowhere near the people. How is he going to deliver the people when he's now having to flee as a murderous outlaw? How is the deliverance of God going to come to the people of God who are suffering when the deliverer has tried to make things happen in his own way and now ends up out in the boonies? which goes back to our central idea. Do not trust what you can see, but trust the sovereign promise of God. God is working to bring deliverance to his people through Moses, and that deliverance is going to spill out to the nations over generations, ultimately through Christ. So three things that we can learn, we need to see from this text. The first thing is that uh, nothing can stop the sovereign 
purposes of God. Nothing can. I want you to think about Moses as the deliverer here. Think about all the things that God has to orchestrate to get Moses in position to be a deliverer. His mother has to trust and put him in a basket. Miriam has to follow. Pharaoh's daughter's got to be bathing at the right place at the right time. And in her heart, she has to, as the texts say, she has to be stirred up to have pity on him. And then she's got to acquiesce and say, okay, yeah, bring, bring, uh, take him to, to, to the woman. Take him to a woman to nurse him. All of these things that God has to align to get the deliverer in place, but God does it. And he does it against a backdrop of evil and death. Now, if you look from the outside, you see this circumstance, you say, well, nothing is going to happen here. Nothing good is going to happen. There's going to be no deliverer raised up. There's no way for salvation. There's no way for liberation. But God is actually working behind the scenes sovereignly to bring about his purposes. Even though all you can see is death, God is raising up someone to bring life. And even the edict of Pharaoh cannot stop God's sovereign purposes and plans. You know what this means for us? This means that you have to resolve to not base everything on the circumstances that you see. You have to resolve to not base everything on what you see and how the circumstances are at that very moment. God is always working for his purposes, for our good, despite what appearances look like. I love this quote. Um, I've heard this from several writers, um, so this is not original to me, but this, this encouragement that God is doing 10,000 things in your life right now, and you might be aware of three of them. That God is working on deep, deep levels through multiple circumstances in ways that are beyond our comprehension, in ways that transcend our circumstances, and we can only see a sliver of it, so do not base everything on simply what you see. Trust the sovereign purposes and plans of God who is good. It's the first thing we see in this text. The second thing that we see that's important in this text is to trust, to actively act, to display our trust by acting, acting out our faith in God's revealed sovereign promise. So we need to display our trust by acting, acting out our faith in God's revealed sovereign promise. I want you to think about Moses here. Moses is living in the lap of luxury. He's heard his Hebrew identity. He's been schooled in that by his mother. But at a certain point, he comes back, right, to Pharaoh's daughter. And he's living for many years in the royal home, in luxury. There would be nothing that was uh, beyond his request. He could have anything that he wanted. There's no pleasure opportunity beyond his reach. He is royalty in Egypt, but his people are oppressed. He knows his identity. He knows the comfort and luxury that he has. And yet Moses, in verse 11, goes out to see his people, and he decides to identify with the Hebrews. This is a decisive turn that Moses is making. There's no, he understands that there is no turning back from this moment. 
There's no crossing Pharaoh and then coming back saying, hey, that was, that was just a bad day, you know, can I, can I come back to the palace? No, this is a decisive moment where Moses understands this is who I am. I'm a Hebrew, but I've been placed in Egyptian comfort and luxury, schooled in these ways. These people have loved me, embraced me as their own, but he decides to trust not in the comfort that he sees. He decides not to trust in Pharaoh. He decides to, to say, I know who I am. I've heard the promises of God. I've heard the character of God from, from my family. I am going to stand with God by standing as identifying with my suffering people. Moses decides to align himself with the people of God, thereby aligning himself with God. This is a big decision. He is turning in a life of luxury for a life of suffering. He's leaving behind the riches of Egypt for the burden of the Hebrews. He's leaving the palace and he's going to the slums. This is what Moses is doing. He is making a decisive decision to identify with the people of God. And I don't think we can overstate probably the conflict that Moses is experiencing. He can identify with God, trust in the promise of God. He, he's heard the promise guaranteed up to some point in his life. He's heard the promise that God was going to bring blessing to the nations through his people. And he's saying, but look at my people. So how is the blessing going to come to the people? How are we going to dwell in the land with the presence of God when we're enslaved here under Pharaoh? enslaved under the person whose house that I live in. I'm going to stand for the purposes of God. I'm going to believe the promise, and I want God to use me as part of his work of deliverance. This is an act of faith by Moses. He is trusting in the sovereign plan and promise of God. Hebrews 11 describes it like this. Hebrews 11 has this kind of hall of fame of faith, and they include Moses, and it gives insight into what is happening in Moses' mind and life at this point in Exodus that the author in Exodus doesn't give us. Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses considered the reproach of Christ, being insulted for Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For Moses was looking to the reward. You see how the author of Hebrews helps us to understand what's happening here? He's saying Moses was acting by faith in God. He wasn't believing the circumstances of luxury and comfort that Egypt was offering. He was saying, I am choosing to identify with the people of God, with the promise of God, with my God and my Savior and my Deliverer. He was looking forward, trusting in faith what God would bring about through his act of obedience, through his faith and trust. He's trusting in the promise of God. Even though you got to admit, if you're going to look at all things considered, this is not a smart move by Moses. If we're just going to look at this with the facts laid out on the table, this is not a great move. He has it made. He has everything he could ever want. And he thinks little old him is going to lead to an overthrow of Pharaoh, the power of the world, and deliver the people of God. This is not a smart move considering the circumstances by Moses. 
This, this, this is not the, uh, the educated decision here, considering the circumstances. But Moses, again, is trusting in the promise of God, not trusting in what he sees, but in the promise and plan of God. And notice how Hebrews describes what Moses does with kind of a twofold action. This, this uh, refused, right? The author uses the language of refused to be identified as Pharaoh's daughter's son. So there's this denial of something, and there's this choosing to identify with the people of God. And it's almost this two sides of the same coin. And, and really, it, harkens, it kind of harkens back to this idea that Jesus speaks about of repentance and faith. These two sides of the same coin, that in order to be restored to God, we must repent and trust in Jesus. We must deny, we must turn from sin, not in becoming perfect, but we must see it for what it is, turn from it, and put our trust in Jesus sacrifice and atonement for us. And Moses is showing us a piece of that by denying to be identified, refusing to be identified with the people of Egypt and identifying and trusting in the person and promise and deliverance of God. See, this is what is required if you're going to act on the promises of God in your life. Because the circumstances in your life are telling you to believe that God is not with you, God is not for you, to believe that the circumstances are all that you see. But if you're going to exercise faith in a circumstance, you have to deny, no, circumstance, it's not just what you see. I believe in the promise of God that he's working out everything for my good. You have to do this refusal and trust in God. You have to act and trust in his sovereign plan and promise. You have to do the two-move step that Moses makes where he refuses to be identified with Egypt. He says, I trust in God, and because I trust in God, I identify with the people of God. He's looking beyond his circumstance. Now, on the surface, this looks irrational, but at a certain point, we can understand things and we can get concepts and we can get insight, but at a certain point, faith does look irrational given the circumstances. It doesn't make sense to be suffering of an illness and to say, I know that God is going to use this for good in my life. That doesn't make sense. But you're exercising faith in the promise of God like Moses is here. It doesn't make sense to have joy in your life when your kids are going crazy or your job is horrible or you're in a season of life where you feel incredibly lonely and you're being honest about that, but at the same time to say, I know that God is for me and with me and he loves me, that doesn't make sense. But that's exercising trust, not in just the circumstance, but in the promise of God, which is what Moses does here. Do you see it? This is what God is calling us to. In order to do this, you have to know the character of God. To do this, you have to know who God is. You have to know the promises of God, and you have to resolve to look beyond your circumstances to who God is. And because Moses does this, he identifies with the people of God. Now, Moses, as you noticed, uh, does something wrong in this passage, and he murders someone. So he identifies with the people of God. He puts his trust in God, but then he essentially is going to say, I'm going to bring about deliverance in my way. And Moses, as we know from the rest of the uh, biblical story, has a little bit of a temper. So it's probably not a stretch to say a little bit of Moses' temper comes out here in chapter 2. This is, the, this is the instance of like, wow, great intention, very bad application. Where his heart is burning with a burden for his people, and he acts out by murdering the person who is attacking the Hebrew. This is not the way. Acts 7 gives us some insight into this, that Moses thought that in Moses' mind, Acts 7 tells us that 
he was thinking that when the people saw that he did this, they would understand that he was the deliverer that God was raising up. But what do the, how do the people respond to Moses? He said, who, who made you prince and ruler over us? Are, are you going to kill us the way you killed that Egyptian? Now, we have to understand the foolishness of Moses. He's right to trust God and align himself with God. But the foolishness of the application, how are you going to overthrow a world power by outkilling them? This makes no sense. This is a foolish, hasty, uh, uh, just kind of uh, instantaneous flash of anger. You're, you're really going to set people free by, by killing the Egyptians who are, we've already seen are masters at exterminating people? This makes no sense. He's not trusting in God's timing. He's not trusting in, in God's way of bringing this about. He's, he's, he's trusting in God, but he's saying, well, let's do it now. Let me make it happen now. A flash of anger rises over him. He sees injustice. He's going to act, and it's not the way. And here's what happens. Because he acts out of step with God's way and purpose, where does he end up? In Midian. The the deliverer is nowhere near the people of God. What's going to happen? Here's the third thing we need to see from the text, is that when you trust in God's promises, as Moses is doing, even when you sin, God wastes nothing. When you trust in God's promises, even when you sin and screw up, God wastes nothing. He won't waste anything. He will not waste it, right? This is a plot twist in the text. The deliverer turns into a murderer on the run. Moses, who's going to lead his people to, uh, to an exodus, has to take his own exodus. He's got to run. So how is this going to work out? But God wastes nothing. But this is not a short layover in Midian. This isn't a couple weeks stay at an Airbnb. This isn't anything like that. This is 40-year detour. We know it's from Acts 7. This is 40-year detour that Moses is taking because of his foolishness. 40 years. One commentator puts it like this. Moses was uh, 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the wilderness, Midian learning to do nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness, proving God to be everything. Things move very slowly for Moses. This is a 40-year detour. This is a time of humbling before a time of deliverance and glory. Because there's something in Moses that needs to be refined. There's something commendable, a heart for justice. We see this in that he stands up for the Hebrews, but he does it in the wrong way. And we see this refined a little bit in Midian where he stands up for Yule's daughters. He, he fights for them. He defends them without killing. He does it in a righteous way. So we see that, that he's growing, but there's a refinement that needs to happen in Moses before he can be the leader and deliverer of God's people. There's actually a pattern set here that we see with Jesus Christ, that before Jesus even delivered his people, being a sinless uh, son of God, even he labored in obscurity for 30 years. So we see a pattern set here of humility and obscurity before glory and deliverance. We see this pattern here, but look at the mercy of God, this foolishness by Moses, the uh, outflow of his sin is not wasted. The detour is not wasted. In the hands of God who is sovereign, the consequences and the fallout of our bad decisions don't go to waste. God actually bends them towards redemptive purposes. Moses' personal exodus becomes a time of formation for him. He actually becomes the man who is capable of leading God's people. Think of what would have happened if Moses led God's people right away. If he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and his response is murder, what is he going to do to the Hebrews when they complain in the wilderness that they don't have bread and water? He's going to kill them all. 
He's just, he's just going to wipe them out. He's, just, he's not going to be able to deal with these stubborn, stiff-necked, foolish, kind of flaky people. He's not of a man of character to lead God's deliverance at this point in time. And so God is actually going to bend the consequences of Moses' sin to bring a redemptive purpose and form him in such a way, prepare things so that the people can be led free to their deliverance. That's what God is doing. Moses almost has to have his own rock bottom before he can lead the people to salvation. And this is the pattern that we see in Scripture, that through the grace of Jesus, our own rock bottoms are not wasted, but God bends them towards redemptive purposes. Though we don't celebrate sin, we don't rejoice in the consequences of it, we can look back at the story of our lives and see that God has brought good or at least has taught us things out of the foolish sins and decisions that we've made. That the scars that we carry also have within them lessons that God has used to refine our character. You guys with me? You guys awake? You guys hear this? You guys, you guys hear? Okay, great. Right? So, so this is what God does through our scars and through our sins. That he brings redemption out of them. This is how God works. He brings redemption and beauty out of sin and brokenness. This is the pattern even of the cross. The cross on its surface looks like death is one, but it's our salvation. It's the forgiveness of our sins by grace through faith. And so we need to have a new understanding of the consequences of our sin and our failure. We don't celebrate them, but we also understand that the moments where we hit rock bottom is actually our enrollment in a classroom where God does his greatest teaching and refinement of our character. That your rock bottom is not disqualification from, from God's salvation. It's actually the preparation for your character and what God will choose to do through you in the present or in the future. We need a new perspective that actually believes in the sovereign power of God to take our foolishness and bend it towards good. We need to understand who God is. God wastes nothing in his wisdom. It takes every circumstance and bends it towards good for his people. Now, one of the things here is that Moses is waiting for 40 years. Can you imagine this? If you take nothing from this, at least, um, at least know that you, we really have no, we have no reason to be impatient about anything, right? 40 years, 40 years in Midian, probably every day thinking about his people. Probably not an hour goes by, he's not thinking about his people. 40, 40 years. This is an important message for us because we are always in a hurry. You are always in a hurry. I am always in a hurry. And think of how hurry impacts us when we think about achievement. We always feel, don't we, that we need to achieve something else or we need to get one more thing done or we're not where we're supposed to be compared to that person or our self-imposed standard or cultural standards or where we're supposed to be by a certain age or, or any of these things. We always feel like there is one more thing for us to achieve. I remember speaking with a friend this week who was in town, just got a great promotion at his job, and now he, he's asking, like, how do I be thankful for this promotion but also balance the fact that I feel like now I need another one? It's like, dude, you just got this. You're doing great. It's like, just be content with what you have. Like, this is incredible. You're doing fantastic. But it's always this sense, and, and he's kind of trying to fight against it, but it's just this sense that I need to get the next thing. Right? This sense that I need to achieve one more thing. This present season, this job, this house, this life stage, it seems like a waste until we get to the thing where we want to be. 
And then when we get to the thing where we want to be, that seems like a waste until we get to the next thing, right? This is just part of us. So we need to learn how to navigate this and see this in a completely different way. And here's what we need to do. We need to understand that the detours, that the delays, that the inconveniences, that the wanderings, that these wilderness moments, they are not a waste. That in the hands of God, the detours, the wilderness wanderings, the delays are not a waste, but God uses them to refine us in ways that were otherwise not possible. That's what's happening to Moses. That God is going to use every detour that comes its way in your life for your refinement, to make you have a character that you would otherwise not have, to sanctify you for your sanctification, that is for making you more like Jesus in your character. That's what God is doing through those detours. Do you think about this? There's, uh, you've heard the phrase, the Midas touch, where someone touches, every, touches something and it's successful or turns gold. You hear about this music producers, oh, this guy's got the Midas touch. You just get a single for him or her, and then it's going to blow up, right? This idea of the Midas touch, whatever they touch turns to gold. Well, God has a sanctification touch. Whatever intersects with the life of a believer, God will use to refine them and grow them in Christ-likeness. Now, if you understand that and if you believe that about God, it changes how you see circumstances. You still grieve where you grieve. You still celebrate where you celebrate, but you understand this is hard, but God's got a sanctification touch. I'm intersecting with this circumstance. God's going to use this to make me more dependent on him, to make me holier, to make me more loving, to make me more gracious, to make me refined. God's going to use this to make me more like Jesus because God has a sanctification touch and he is dedicated to the growth of his children, and he will waste no circumstance that comes your way. It feels like a waste to you, but it's God's laboratory for refining you and growing you. And if you don't have this perspective, you're going to be the gloomiest Christian that we've ever seen. You have no joy. You have no happiness. You have no hope. But if you have this perspective, you grieve where you grieve, you're down when you're down, but even within those things, you have hope because you know God has a sanctification touch and he wastes nothing. And this is what we see in Romans 8, one of these high points of Scripture that declares that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good who are called according to his purpose. And what's happening in Romans 8 is a thread that's coming from the gospel that says that if God has given his son for our sins, God is so for us that he will bend our hardest circumstance and bend it towards our good. That if God would forgive us of our sins, if he would solve our greatest problem through Christ, he's going to take every trial, detour, inconvenience, and he's going to grab it by the neck, and he's going to make it do good in your life. That's who God is. And so you might be in this stretch of life where you're like, I wish I was this. I wish I had this job. I, I wish I, uh, I'm not married. I wish I was married. I, I don't have kids. I wish I had kids. I have kids. I wish I didn't have kids. I have this job. Whatever this thing is that you're like, I wish this is a waste. I wish, I wish, I wish. I know it can be hard. And it's hard in some ways that only you can know. I understand that. God knows that. But God wants you to understand if you trust in him, it is not a waste. It's not a waste doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean you have to pretend you feel glittery about it, but you need to understand for your good, it is not a waste because God has a sanctification touch. 
And that's what God is doing in the life of Moses. Right? Consider, consider what Moses is going to deal with after this. Moses is going to return to the place where he was raised, and he's going to stand up to the power of the world. It's going to be the mouthpiece of God. You got, you got to be ready for that. Even we're going to see in the next chapter, Moses is, Moses is prepared, but Moses has right, still got some work to do. He's going to stand up as a mouthpiece for God. He's going to deliver God's people so that they can be a blessing to the nations, so that Christ would come from them. He's got to be prepared. He's got to be refined. The time has got to be ready. And God is doing that work for him in him in this wilderness wandering. Your detours are not wasted. See, we want linear, we want life to be linear, for things to grow linearly, to happen linearly, and we want them to happen at a microwave speed, like three minutes tops. But God is giving us detour growth at a wilderness pace. And if we don't understand that, we'll be perpetually discouraged. But if we do understand that, we will look at our life and say, none of this is a waste because the God who gave grace to me in Jesus is bending every circumstance that intersects with my life. He's bending it for my good. I might not see it right now. I may see it later, but he is bending it for my good. He's for me. This is why we must trust not in what we see only, but in the sovereign promises of God, right? So one of the things from this is when you feel most forgotten by God, that might actually be the time where God is doing more in you than you can imagine. You got to think about Moses. What is, what is, I I mean, we'll give a million dollars to know what is going through this man's mind. Just give me his journal. 40 years of waiting, but God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to bring accountability to Pharaoh. None of that's in question. He's going to do it. But God is wasting nothing. He wastes nothing in your life. So the questions for us are, will you trust the sovereign wisdom, promise, and plan of God? Will you trust his sanctification touch? What circumstance do you need to change your perspective on right now? What what thing in your life right now do you need to remember that God has a sanctification touch on that circumstance. You do that, you'll be be filled with hope, awe, love, joy, knowing that God is with you and for you. Right? This is part of what we talk about being gospel-centered. This is what it means to be gospel-centered, to see your circumstance in the light of the gospel. If God has given his son for me, he's going to work this circumstance for good in my life somehow, some way. And then we also need to see ultimately that the deliverer that God is going to raise up is not going to be a flawed man who commits murder, but a righteous man who is murdered for us. That's what we need to see. Flawed man commits murder to try to deliver the people. No, God is going to raise up a righteous man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who is so righteous he would not murder to defend his name, but be murdered for us. He would take our sins upon himself. He would take the judgment of God that we deserve upon his own shoulders. He would carry it to the cross. He would be nailed to the cross. He would be crucified in our place. His blood would pour down the wooden Roman cross for us. 
so that we could be set free from sin's power, sin's penalty, and welcomed into relationship with the God who made us to know him and to dwell in his presence by faith. That's what we need to see from this text. So if God would do that for us, we can trust him beyond our circumstance. So we don't trust in what we see. We trust in the sovereign promise and plan of God who gave his son for us. Let's take a moment to pray. I want to encourage you to pray uh, silently, silent uh, prayer and confession. If there's a circumstance in your life that you've been uh, not believing that God has a sanctification touch upon, bring it before God and ask for his help, ask for his forgiveness, ask him to help you see your circumstances in life in light of the gospel and his sanctification touch. Father, we confess that we uh, often trust in what we see and we trust in how we can make sense of our circumstances in our uh, finite knowledge more than we trust uh, in your infinite wisdom and and how you're working um, in line with your promises. We ask that you would forgive us for for our lack of trust in you there and we pray that you would help us to to trust in you uh, with all our heart, to lean not on our own understanding, knowing that because of Christ, you are working all things for our good. Jesus, would you help us to fix our eyes on you and your cross and your resurrection as a proof that God is for us, that is with us, and that his promises and plans uh, work for the good uh, of his people and for the good of the nations, even in the midst of the detours and and trials uh, that discourage us. Empower us, God, by your spirit to wait on you, to rejoice in you, to obey you, not only when things are going well, but in our, in our detours, in our, in our wilderness wanderings, um, in our sins and in our struggles. Help us to, to trust in the truth of what Christ has done and, and in the truth that you're working all things for our good. We pray this in your name, for our good, for your glory. Amen.